Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. It was a perfect night to go out in Central Florida. It was early summer, hot, humid. And people were looking to let loose and dance the Saturday night away at their favorite bar. At a popular gay nightclub, the music was blaring. Drinks were flowing, hips were swaying. But then, everything changed. Loud bangs were heard inside the club. At first, it wasn't clear. Was it just the music? Or maybe it was firecrackers going off outside. The music stopped, and then it happened again. This time, it was clear. Gunshots were going off in the tightly packed nightclub. People rushed to the exits and hid in restrooms, 911 calls flooded emergency dispatchers. So where are you right now? In the club in the back room. What's the name of the club? Pulse. Pulse? Yes. He's hiding inside the stalls of Pulse Club. They're in trouble. There's so many dead people there. Hurry up. They were like dragging bodies. Um, people that were wounded. Um, just to get them out of the way. Yeah, it's probably the worst feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. That night turned out to be one of the deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history. It's been four years, and I wondered, whatever happened to those who survived the night? And to the club? And to those left behind to pick up the pieces of this horrible tragedy? I'm Erica Vella a reporter for Global News. And on this episode, I look at whatever happened to the Pulse nightclub shooting. The Pulse nightclub shooting on June 12, 2016, wasn't only one of the deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history. It was and continues to be the deadliest attack on LGBTQ2S plus people in the U.S. 49 people were killed, Another 53 were injured by the gunfire, and more than 300 witnessed the massacre in the nightclub that night. These were mostly LGBTQ2S plus people, many of whom were people of color. And if you think about it, the impact of that night is even broader. The close friends and family, the network of people connected to each individual— I remember covering the story in June 2016. I remember hearing about the text messages and the phone calls people sent in panic that night. A mother calling her son, a sister texting her brother, a friend leaving a voicemail for the fifth, sixth, tenth time. 
I wanted to speak with someone who was there at Pulse nightclub that night. And one of the first things Brandon Wolf said to me was that June 11th, 2016, was the last normal day for him. It was that way for many others, too. I remember that it was a Saturday. I remember that meant it was laundry day, which meant I was knee-deep in socks and underwear, as many people, I'm sure, are on the weekends. Um, I, you know, I had a salary job for the first time, uh, and so I was working really hard at that time. I remember, you know, feeling excited that I got to sleep in a little bit. Uh, My best friends, Drew and Juan, um, were on a date at SeaWorld, and I remember they were almost offensively photogenic, in my opinion. And so uh, while I was there folding my socks and underwear, I was also angrily liking all of their photos on Facebook because uh, they were just offensively too cute. Uh, and I remember binge-watching Netflix. I also remember that I had been through a, a pretty rough breakup at the time, and so I was I was kind of navigating those emotions, and Drew knew that. I gone to his apartment a couple of times that week just to cry over a bottle of wine or two. Um, And so as the day wound to a close, um, we did what we normally did, and and that is decided to go out for a drink. So I I texted Drew and Juan probably around seven or eight in the evening, uh, asking if they'd like to go out and get a drink. Um, They resisted a little bit. They'd been out all day at SeaWorld. They were probably hot and tired, but I was going through a hard time. And so I said, you know, I really need my best friends to help me get my mind off of things. I really need you there. And of course, just like any good best friends, they said they would do that. So um, around, I think it was 11 p.m., uh, Drew and Juan came to my apartment. And again, by all accounts, it was normal. It was everything we normally did. We gathered around the kitchen island. We listened to the same soundtrack we always listened to. Um, I was almost never allowed to be the bartender because I always make drinks too strong, but for some reason, somebody let me behind the bar that night. And so I remember we made our usual drinks. We watched the same silly videos that always got us in the mood to go out. And when it came time to pick our destination, we almost literally flipped a coin. I remember us pulling out the rideshare app and just typing in whichever club was closest. And that happened to be Pulse. Before we continue with Brandon's story, I wanted to jump in for a sec. To anyone passing by, Pulse looked like your run-of-the-mill nightclub at the corner of South Orange Avenue and East Esther Street. Before it was a club, it was a restaurant, and there are a couple of fast food chains nearby, a Wendy's across the street and a bagel shop down the road. The building itself has a dark-colored exterior and a black awning. Inside, Pulse was more than just another gay club. It hosted top drag performers as well as local acts. Inside, there was a large bar, and not too far from that, there was a DJ booth on a balcony. And of course, there was a dance floor. And on Latin night, it was always packed. This place was special because for Brandon and many others, Pulse was a safe space for their community. And the reality is that being LGBTQ in America, really being LGBTQ anywhere around the world, is to fear for your life and your safety in the most normal of situations. The the spaces that are safe for other people aren't safe for LGBTQ people. I know that the term safe space has been perverted a bit by online trolls and turned into some sort of a punchline, but the reality is that safe spaces are lifelines 
for our community that we've carved into cubby holes in neighborhoods, on side streets, places where we can be all of ourselves without fearing discrimination or violence. My favorite thing about Pulse was the ability to just dance freely and have nobody judge you for it. I, I probably looked ridiculous, two left feet, chicken arms flailing. But the reality was that when I was on the dance floor at Pulse nightclub with my best friends, I was free. I was free to be every ounce of myself, and I didn't have to be afraid of that anymore. So on Saturday, Brandon, Juan, and Drew went where they felt safe. I remember the same drag queen that was always at the front door was there to take my money. I remember how packed it was. It was Latin night. Um, so, of course, the music was loud. I couldn't dance to save my life, but who cared? Uh, we were just there. We were happy. We, were, we, we had arrived in life. Uh, I remember making our way through the crowd to the same bartender we always went to, uh, ordering, again, the same drinks we always ordered. I remember passing the manager of the club. His name is Brian. And uh, it always happened. It never failed that one or two drinks into the evening, we would bump into Brian and he would offer us a shot of Fireball. And of course, Fireball is one of the most disgusting things you can put into your body. So I would immediately react with a firm no. And Drew would always react with a firm yes. And Drew always won. And he won that night. And so there we were uh, standing in the dance floor room, taking our shot of Fireball as we always did. Um, I, rem I also remember that Drew had this way about him. He had a master's degree in clinical psychology. And when he had a drink or two, uh, he would opine on life. In fact, he would give you three therapy sessions. And so that night out on the patio underneath the sky, in the usual spot that we always stood, Drew started into his therapy session. And he talked about love. He talked about society. He talked about how frequently we let small things get in the way of how much we care about people, how much we care about each other. He was talking about my recently failed relationship, to be honest, but it felt like he was talking about society in a broader sense. It felt like he was talking about just how broken we had become, just how far down the rabbit hole of hatred and fear and division we had allowed ourselves to go. And I remember he had these long gangly arms uh, that, you know, when he, again, had a drink or two, he'd drape over your shoulder, almost propping himself up. And he did that. He threw his arm around my shoulder and he said, you know what I wish we did more of was say, I love you. And he made us go around in a circle and tell each other that we love each other. And then we went inside and continued to dance. Everything about it was normal. It was exactly the kind of world that I had fought so hard to be a part of. It's the reason I moved 3,500 miles away from my parents to find a space where I could be all of myself. It's the reason I left one career for another, went off chasing my dreams because I was searching for a space where I could stand with my racially intersectional out and proud best friends underneath a disco ball and just twirl until the club closed. And so that's what we did. We whirled and twirled and danced with our two left feet. And then somewhere just before two o'clock in the morning, we realized that we were far too old to be closing a club and that we should probably call it a night. Um, but before we did that, I just needed to wash my hands. And so I stepped into a bathroom and 
the next moments are so vivid for me that they frequently revisit me in my dreams. That one decision to wash his hands saved Brandon's life. At 2.02 a.m., a man armed with a semi-automatic rifle and a 9mm Glock walked into Pulse nightclub through the south door and began firing. People rushed out, and an Orlando Police Department officer working extra duty as a security guard called for backup. He shot several rounds at the suspect who was inside a set of double doors. Meanwhile, Brandon was in the bathroom. I remember for some reason the posters above the urinals. They were colorful, there were drag queens. Uh, I remember how cold the water was in the sink in the bathroom. I remember a plastic cup with someone's half-empty drink that was sort of teetering on the edge, looking like it might fall off. I distinctly remember the first sound of gunshots and my own confusion. I think initially I thought that there was just a malfunction in the music. Something had gone wrong. And then there was this almost eerie pause between bursts of gunfire. The music still raging in the background, the beat still thumping in the floor, but something felt really off. And it was at that point that about a dozen people rushed into the bathroom with us. And they had this look on their faces like they had seen the purest form of evil. By 2.05 a.m., just three minutes after the first shots were fired, the gunfire stopped. Outside, more officers arrived on scene, including members from the SWAT team. But then, at 2.10, another round of shots could be heard inside the club. And this time it did not relent. It was just a bang, 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 bang. It's a moment that I think will stick with me until the end of time. The hair was standing up on the back of my neck. I felt my heart rate speeding up. And then I got the first whiff of blood and smoke mixed together. And I had this panicked realization that we, we were going to die inside that club. And so this debate started in the bathroom between these people about whether or not we should run or try to find somewhere to hide. The only problem was we were in a men's only restroom with no door and no stalls. There was nowhere to hide. And so we realized that our only chance for survival was going to be to try to escape. So I locked arms with these dozen people that I'd never met before, that I didn't know, and I ran. I told myself over and over again, don't look to the left, because I knew what was happening in there. I knew what was happening in that dance room. I just knew that if I turned my eyes to the left, I would see something that I would never unsee for the rest of my life. And so I just kept staring at this little sliver of light that had opened from an emergency exit as we sprinted for it. The door swung open and we burst outside and it was disorienting at first. Remember, we'd had several drinks and there was this panicked confusion and and people sprinting left and right. I remember people tripping over themselves, trying to get over barriers to get away from the club. I remember people screaming. It seemed like some people may be injured. And there was this relentless bang, bang, bang behind you. 
As more police arrived, it wasn't clear exactly what was happening. And even for those who made it outside, like Brandon, it wasn't clear how bad things were inside the club. Worst of all, he didn't know where his friends were. And then you're outside on the sidewalk, you have this realization that the two people that mean the most to you in the world are still trapped in there. There is this still relentless gunfire in the background, like a war zone. And then all of a sudden you've got police cruisers and suburbans roaring up to the club, police officers jumping out with assault weapons and shotguns, and they're screaming at people to get on the ground or get out of the way. It was mass chaos. He made it out, but he wasn't able to help his friends, Drew and Juan, who were still inside. And I I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that I wouldn't get to go back in and find Drew and Juan. I asked everybody on the sidewalk nearby if they had seen anything. Um, I started, of course, dialing Drew at that moment. I, I must have called him 100 or 200 times. Brandon started to walk. He wanted to get away from all the chaos that was happening around him. He needed to get to a quieter place. He needed to get a hold of his friends. He thought about going to the Orlando Regional Medical Center. It's a 12-minute walk from the nightclub in case Drew or Juan were taken there if they were injured. But by then, police had locked down the building and the surrounding area, so he kept going until he found a spot where he could catch his breath. We essentially turned that parking lot of 7-Eleven into our base camp. Um, We started waking up friends. By now it's three o'clock in the morning. We're waking up friends, telling them they need to get to us right away. Friends start arriving. They've got phone chargers. They're, you know, buying water. Um, We just continue to call Drew and Juan over and over again. Uh, And that's the first time as well that I had contact with either one of their parents. Um, I posted on Facebook that there had been a shooting Meanwhile, the shooting at the nightclub continued. Orlando police estimated the suspect fired approximately 200 rounds in less than five minutes. At 2.10 a.m., police say a victim who was inside the club's North restroom called 911 and told the gunman had barricaded himself inside with about 10 other people. Officers identified this as a hostage situation, and they worked to get the people who were trapped inside out. Knowing that the suspect had locked himself and hostages in the restroom, police began rescuing people on the club's patio and other areas inside the club. At 2.35 a.m., police said they received a suspicious call from an unidentified man. At first, he began speaking in Arabic, soon switching to English. He told the 911 operator, I'm in Orlando and I did the shooting. He then pledged his allegiance to the leader of ISIS. Orlando police say the call lasted about 50 seconds. The suspect would go on to call a local cable channel and told a producer there that he was, in fact, the shooter. He had called 911 five times in total. Members from the crisis negotiation team were involved and had spoken to the suspect. The suspect told negotiators he was wearing an explosive vest and that there was a vehicle in the parking lot with explosives inside. 
By 5 a.m., over three hours after the shooting began, members of the Orange County Sheriff's Department prepared to go into the club using a technique they call an explosive breach. Police detonated a small explosive on the outside of the club. They were going to use that hole to gain access to the club's restroom where the suspect had locked himself with hostages. That's when more shots were heard. 13 officers fired at least 172 times. The shooter was hit seven times. A half hour later, police determined the shooter was dead and they rescued the remaining people inside the bar. Hours later, the suspect's vehicle was discovered and it had no explosives inside. In the end, a total of 90 people were rescued from the club, but 49 lay lifeless, casualties of the carnage that had taken place in what was supposed to be a safe space. You might be wondering, like I was, what happened to Brandon's friends, Drew and Juan? Brandon was waiting at the 7-Eleven, hoping to connect with them. There was another friend who had been at the club but went home a little earlier. Uh, He drove back and started to help people in the immediate aftermath of the shooting as they were getting out. And he was keeping his eyes open for, you know, faces that he recognized. And I remember him calling me when I was still at 7-Eleven and saying, I think I saw one. And I said, oh, my God, is he okay? Is he, you know, did you talk to him? What did he say? And he said, I couldn't get close enough to talk to him. I can tell that he's been shot several times. I just saw him on a stretcher. He wasn't moving. But they did take him out into an ambulance. Brandon says he got in touch with Juan's family. He spoke with his sister. She just kept asking me over and over again, can you please promise me that he wasn't there? Can you please promise me that he wasn't there? And I just sat there in silence because I couldn't bring myself to tell her what I knew to be true. I couldn't bring myself to tell her how the night had unfolded. And so the only words I could get out of my mouth were, I am so sorry. And one of the moments that again continues to stick with me is his mother's scream in the background because he was the baby. He was his mother's baby. And it was like in that moment, hearing her in the background, that part of her died too. And so I shared with them what I knew, that I knew he'd been shot several times. I knew that he'd been taken out of the club. And I just told them to go find him. I don't know where he is. I wish I had more information, but please find him. A few hours later, she called me back and could barely get out the words, but they had identified his body at the hospital. Uh, They tried to operate on him, but couldn't save him because he'd suffered something like nine or 10 gunshot wounds. And I think at that moment, I understood for the first time in my life what the word heartbreak really means. 
that the people you love the most, the relationships you value the most can be ripped out from underneath you in the most violent, hateful, horrific fashion. That's what heartbreak feels like. Brandon says it took a couple of days before he or anyone learned about what happened to Drew. We were doing back-of-the-napkin math statistics on how many people we knew were in hospital beds, how many people we knew had lost their lives, how many bodies we knew had been identified. What are the odds that Drew could be one of those people somewhere in a hospital bed clinging to life? And what would that look like? What would it look like to have to tell him that Juan didn't make it? What would it look like for him to have to recover in this world without the love of his life? Brandon said he found out what happened from Christine Leinenen, Drew's mother, who learned of Drew's fate 33 hours after the shooting. I kept saying, no, they're going to find out that my son is one of those people in surgery. They're going to find that out. They're They're just telling me that. I felt, actually, I felt drained. I wasn't even angry. It was a sadness, a depressed sadness drain. Like all of, I was ready to accept that my son was in surgery and I would have taken my son home and rehabilitated him. And I was accepting that and I was never accepting that he was dead, never I I just always had hope. Drew, or Christopher Andrew Leinenen by his given name, and his partner, Juan Ramon Guerrero, would be two of the 49 innocent victims killed at Pulse. And that was it. Just like that, they were both gone. With no warning. With no compassion. With no empathy, they were just stolen from all of us. The shooting garnered international attention, partly because of its senseless nature and partly because it happened in June, which is Pride Month, a time when the LGBTQ2 community celebrates. Only now, there was grief and deep mourning. I hadn't processed just how massive the situation was until the next day. And, you know, I knew reporters were trying to get in contact. Um, My phone, eventually I turned it off because at one point I had like 200 voicemails from all these reporters and people that I hadn't talked to in years checking on me. So I had some sense of the fact that what had happened was bad. I didn't really grasp how bad it was until we finally went home and I turned on the local news. Um, I didn't have cable at the time. So uh, Drew had given me this little satellite that you stick in the window and I, I put on local news. And that's the first time I really saw how many people had died. And we didn't even know the full number at that point, but that's the first time I saw the number. That's the first time that I saw a list of people who had been identified in the club Barbara Poma was in Mexico when the shooting happened. She's one of the owners of the club, and she explained to me that Pulse was more than just a business. 
my passion came from the fact that, you know, I grew up with a gay brother who lost his battle to HIV um, during the AIDS epidemic. So for me, it was, you know, a way to reconnect to a community that I loved and lost when he died. So um, it was just, it was really personal for me. Like many of us, she says she watched what happened on the news. And it was just, I was like, that's my little place in the corner of Orange and Kaylee, a little gay bar that's been there, sitting there quietly and peacefully for, you know, 12 years. And, and so I never expected it to be such international news. And because it, I couldn't even really understand it then. It was, you're in such a state of shock. She took the next plane back to Orlando. In Florida, almost immediately after the tragedy, people mobilized to show their support. Orlando was in mourning, and a makeshift memorial was created outside of the Dr. Phillips Center of Performing Arts, which is about a five-minute drive from the club. Barack Obama, who was president at the time, alongside then-Vice President Joe Biden, left 49 white roses, one for each of the victims who died five days earlier. We will not be able to stop every tragedy. We can't wipe away hatred and evil from every heart in this world. But we can, we can stop some tragedies. We can save some lives. A week later, a vigil was held at Lake Eola Park, where the names of each victim were read to tens of thousands of people who came together to mourn the tragic loss of so many. Orlando United. You may remember, in the days after the shooting, there were massive lineups of people wanting to donate blood. It was a scene that will be etched in my mind for the rest of my life. Um, there were people lined up for as far as you could see wanting to donate blood at our donor centers. Uh, we have a donor center that is just right around the corner, really, from where the Pulse nightclub is. And that one really started to get a lot of people showing up. We brought in some of our mobile units to help with the overflow to bring donors into our big red bus mobiles. Um, we have a donor center there. And there were people everywhere uh, just lining up, crying, wanting to donate, um, people showing up from the community, bringing food and water and uh, everything you could think of just started to unfold at that location. And... Um, you know, then the media started to show up and it was uh, it, media from around the world started calling. That's Susan Forbes from One Blood. One Blood is a blood donation center that serves more than 250 hospitals in Florida and throughout the southeastern United States. In an instant, you know, One Blood became part of the story and we became a part of the story in, in a way that was showing how you could help save people's lives and something that you could do to help. And, you know, we had an extraordinary uh, use of blood that night at the hospital that was um, at Orlando Regional Medical Center was where many of the trauma victims went right down the street. Susan told me after the shooting at Pulse, Healthcare workers at the Orlando Regional Medical Center transfused over 440 units of blood in a 24-hour time period. It's the reason why many people who were at the club that night are alive today. When they're bringing these patients in, they're trauma patients. They've had gunshot wounds and they're bleeding and they need to replenish the blood that they have lost. 
And that is what they're doing. I mean, they need red blood cells to provide oxygen to them and they're, they're bleeding to death and they need to replenish that blood. And one thing that I wondered while I was working on this story was how much blood was actually donated. I mean, did it help? I asked Susan. When we look at those long lines the next morning, those people did a tremendous service to the community in helping replenish that blood supply. But there's also those people who came in the days before that we felt needed to be recognized as well because nobody realized that it's the people who came in the week prior that were helping save those patients' lives. In one week, One Blood collected over 28,000 units of blood. And just to put that into context, in a typical week, One Blood endeavors to collect about 2,000 units a day or around 14,000 units a week. The donations that came in that week nearly doubled what they normally see. And on top of that, Susan says over 33% of those who showed up were first-time donors. But while we're talking about blood donations, I wanted to address another side to this story. We know that many of the thousands of people who showed up to donate after Pulse were from the LGBTQ2S plus community. Susan explained that blood centers in the U.S. are regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, and they're required to ask eligibility questions from donors. One of the donor eligibility questions uh, that donors have to answer before they can donate has to do um, with a policy FDA has in place uh, known as the men who have sex with men policy also known as the MSM policy. And that policy at the time was um, a deferral period for any man who had sex with another man. They were deferred for 12 months from donating blood. So after the shooting, a man who had sex with another man wouldn't be able to donate blood until one year following their last sexual encounter, a policy that upset many people who just wanted to help. And, you know, we... We feel for them anytime we somebody wants to donate and is deferred. You know, we, we don't like to have to tell somebody they aren't able to donate blood. We have to follow the rules. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, they, they wanted to help and were unable to donate. But it was uh, many people who were deferred ended up staying to help in other ways. And they were, you know, helping with the large uh, crowds we had and were helping hand out water and food. And they wanted to stay and be able to help. And so it was very heartwarming to see that they had had, had partnered with us in another way to be able to help. And uh, they understood that it was not one blood that was making those rules, that it is an FDA rule and that we had to follow that. In April... Because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the FDA made changes to the deferral period. The recommended deferral period has now changed from 12 months to three months. Meanwhile, police were conducting investigations into the shooting. The FBI identified the shooter as 29-year-old Omar Mateen. He was from New York, but his family moved to Florida when he was younger. On the night of the shooting, the FBI confirmed Mateen called 911 five times. FBI spokesperson Ron Hopper had this to say at the time. It has been reported that Mateen made calls to 911 this morning in which he stated his allegiance to the leader of the Islamic State. We are looking into any 
and all connections, both domestic and international. Why the killer made these murderous statements, he did so in a chilling, calm, and deliberate manner. The FBI first became aware of Martin in 2013 when he made inflammatory comments to co-workers alleging possible terrorist ties. The killer of 49 and the shooter of 53 others identified himself as an Islamic soldier who pledged allegiance to a terrorist organization which was bent on killing Americans. Omar Mateen was in fact investigated twice by the FBI. He was on the government's terrorist watch list for 10 months before being removed. You might be wondering, if Mateen had been on the FBI's radar, how was it possible for him to get military-style weapons? Was this an underground operation? Well, it turns out it wasn't. He did purchase two firearms, a handgun, and a long gun within the last few days. He was able to purchase the guns legally. It appears under U.S. federal law, being on the government's terrorist watch list doesn't necessarily disqualify you from purchasing a gun from a licensed gun dealer. Days after the Pulse nightclub shooting, four proposals were brought before the U.S. Congress to restrict gun sales, one of which looked at preventing anyone on terrorism watch lists from purchasing guns. All four proposals were rejected. In 2018, the state of Florida put in place the Extreme Risk Protection Order Law. This law basically gives law enforcement the ability to petition a court for a civil order preventing a dangerous person from accessing firearms for up to one year. And it's a law many other states in the U.S. have enacted as well. Mateen died in a shootout with police the morning of June 12, 2016. At the end of all of our interviews, however long that takes, if someone is able to be charged in this investigation, we will bring them to justice. The FBI focused attention on Mateen's wife, Noor Salman. She was his second wife, and they'd been married since 2011. After the investigation, she faced charges of obstruction and providing material to support a terrorist organization. The trial took place in March 2018. And prosecutors said Mateen had intended to attack Disney World's shopping and entertainment complex. Surveillance video showed Mateen walking in the area of the Disney complex just hours before the Pulse attack. He had changed his mind when he saw police and instead chose the gay nightclub as his target. During the trial, defense attorneys said Salman was a woman who was easily manipulated. They said she didn't know of Mateen's plans because he had kept a lot of his life from her. Jurors had deliberated over three days, and on March 30th, 2018, they acquitted her of all charges. For Brandon, the days and weeks that followed the shooting in 2016 are a blur, except for Drew's funeral. I remember that morning, I hadn't written my eulogy yet. I didn't know what to say. And so I sat in my car outside my apartment and my hand was shaking and I was writing on this little crumpled up piece of notebook paper. And the theme of that speech was once in a lifetime. I still have it to this day, I saved it. And the idea was that in the aftermath of this shooting, if we were going to perpetuate this story of love, if we were going to perpetuate this idea that we are stronger 
than the attempts to divide us, that we were stronger than the hatred that showed up at Pulse that night. If we were going to prove that, then it was going to take the kind of love and selflessness and compassion that Drew had because he was a once in a lifetime person. He alone possessed that ability to bring us together that none of the rest of us had, but he had it. So I was writing this speech about Drew as the community's once in a lifetime person and my once in a lifetime person. And I started to think about how do we move forward without that? How do I move forward without that? Because that's the rub, right? These are not just 49 people. They're not just 49 nameless faces. They're not just 49 names scattered on a board that we remember once a year. They're, they're lives. They're brothers, sisters, moms, dads, uncles, nephews, best friends. For me, Drew was not just a statistic or a number. Drew was always going to be a missing face at my birthday party. Drew was always going to be an empty seat at a dinner table. And how would I move forward without him? So that thought was on my brain. As I traveled to the church, we went in through a back entrance, so we didn't quite get a look of what it looked like outside. We were in the waiting room. uh, And then when the service was about to start, we got called into the hall. My breath was taken away when I came around the corner because there were easily over a thousand people in that church. It was packed, front to back, standing room only, spilling out into the street. And it wasn't just the volume of people that blew me away. It was that I knew all of them. And maybe I didn't know them personally. I, I wasn't friends with all of them. I hadn't spent time with all of them. I knew every single face in that church because of Drew. It was once in a lifetime. I had the honor of being a pallbearer that day. And as I was carrying the casket down the aisle, I remember gripping the side of it so tightly that I thought my fingers might fall off. It was that idea that I couldn't let go until I'd found the right way to say goodbye. I couldn't let go until I understood what life looked without Drew. We got to the end of the aisle, and I found the words. I looked down at his casket, and I whispered just for the two of us, I am never going to stop fighting for a world that you would be proud of. That has been the guiding light for everything I've done over the last four years. When times get hard, and they get really hard sometimes, when June 12th rolls around every year, and I'm overcome with the grief that I felt on that day, I'm reminded of the promise that I made Drew, that I will never, ever stop fighting for a world that he would be proud of. As I listen to Brandon speak about mourning for Drew, it really makes me think that this tragedy didn't end when the gunman was killed inside the club over four years ago. People continue to live with the daily reminders of lost loved ones. Some can find comfort 
by coming together and creating spaces where those lost can be remembered. As I researched this story, I thought about Pulse, the club, this safe space that once helped shape memories from big milestones like birthdays, bachelor and bachelorette parties, to something more simple, like just the place to go on a Saturday night. What happened to that landmark that's now synonymous with one of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history? When the club's owner, Barbara Poma, boarded that plane back to Orlando from Mexico, she said she had the sinking feeling. Pulse, as she knew it, was gone. When the FBI returned the property to our possession on July 14th, um, I had to go inside with them to... I don't know, they had to walk me to the building, show me, tell me everything they did and whatever. I had to find some papers. I can't really remember because I was by myself even. And um, I just remember walking through the building and just thinking that you know, no one could ever dance here again. We can't open this place again. We cannot, you know, it just was so sacred. I mean, everything was gone. Liquors off the shelves, no glassware, no furniture. You know, it was a shell. It felt empty. It was empty. It is empty. It's just a really bad place to go back to. It's not a place you like to revisit very much. I mean, there's, I mean, the smell alone, sometimes if I get a whiff of any kind of odor of that, it reminds me of that day. You know, it just sends me to a really bad place. And I mean, it, it, the pulse looked like a shell of itself. It looks nothing like it did when it was open. Me to see everything we had just done um, be destroyed and, you know, see bullet holes in walls and shattered glass. And I mean, it's just, you know, it was, it was not Pulse anymore. You could feel it, you could feel the heaviness. And, and so I just knew we had to do something. The building now stands vacant, a haunting memory of what happened over four years ago. But Barbara says that Pulse will be turned into a memorial with the help of One Pulse Foundation. The foundation has received support and funding from county and state governments. Just like other nonprofits, we raise money. We're raising money. It's a capital campaign. This fund will be used to create a memorial that will be free to the public. There will also be a museum, education programs, and 49 legacy scholarships. As part of the memorial, there will also be something called the Orlando Health Survivors Walk, which marks the three-block walk that some victims and first responders took on the night of the shooting to get to the Orlando Regional Medical Center. The memorial and museum are expected to cost around $45 million. And so the memorial will sit on the same property where the tragedy happened and the building um, in the same property. And it's going to be a beautiful, reflective space that people can come just like they can now at the interim um, and reflect and, and, and ponder and pay their respects and bear witness to what happened that night. Uh, the museum is a short um, walk down the street, um, but maybe a third of a mile, not that far, but you can walk it. It's about a 10-minute walk. The memorial is expected to be completed by June 2022 and the museum in early 2024. For Brandon, he says he and his friends wanted to do something to keep Drew's legacy alive. 
And they formed the Drew Project, which in part empowers young LGBTQ2S plus people by helping create safe spaces in middle school and high school. Since its beginnings, the not-for-profit has invested more than $75,000 in college scholarships to young people, future leaders in the LGBTQ2S plus community. Grief is an incredibly complicated thing. It's really messy. There's anger, there's frustration, and there's sadness. And grief is different for each person. The decisions individuals make to help them move forward can separate them from others who, at their core, are also dealing with the same pain and loss. So when Brandon told me about the Drew Project, I brought it up to Christine, Drew's mother. And quite simply put, she doesn't support it. And she doesn't support the museum either. That surprised me a bit, but again, people deal with grief differently. Christine is also one of the organizers of the Community Coalition Against a Pulse Museum. According to their website, it's a group made up of surviving victims and family members and others who are against the One Pulse Foundation plan for a memorial and museum. They have a petition with over 45,000 signatures. It should be a free space that... Everybody and anyone can go to that is owned by, owned and controlled by the city and their parks so that it could be made into like a, you know, benches or water feature, uh, trees, things of that nature that you're not necessarily getting to know each individual victim, but you're getting to know the gravity of the massacre. And you get to know that by getting inside your own head, giving yourself a place to reflect. That's how, that's how we do it. That's how humans do it. That's how we've done it for centuries. So, yeah, we're against it all together. I asked Barbara about the feedback she had been getting for both the memorial and museum. It varies, but I would say, you know, the majority and a vast majority are supportive of all three parts of the project. We do have a very small um, group that oppose the museum concept because they feel that they don't understand why there's a reason for the museum. It's a very small number, um, but all voices deserve to be heard. You know, there's always, you know, something to be learned. There's always opportunity to understand how people feel, and it's a process for everyone, that's their right, you know? And, and so we respect everyone's opinion and right and viewpoint. One thing that often comes up after mass shootings is the conversation around gun control legislation in the U.S. And Brandon has dedicated his efforts to it. In 2019, Brandon was the first survivor of the Pulse nightclub shooting to testify in front of Congress. I have seen the power of hatred. It tore my world apart, stole my sense of joy, and still haunts me in my nightmares. And part of the work he does now, pushing for tighter gun laws. We live in a country that is obsessed with 
easy access to firearms. We live in a country that fetishizes instruments of death. That is the country that we live in. So much so that the man who committed that atrocity on June 12, 2016, was considered too dangerous on multiple occasions to fly on an airplane because he might be capable of harming others, but not too dangerous to stroll into a gun shop and buy a weapon of war and all the ammunition he could pack into his car. That frustrates me a lot. And it frustrates me that we are so paralyzed by partisan politics. We are so paralyzed by propaganda pushed down from gun manufacturers and the gun lobby that we can't do anything about it. We can't agree on the basic tenets of how much life is worth because we are so busy arguing over the talking points that have been handed to us on a silver platter. That makes me really frustrated. And I'm convinced if we had solved this issue decades ago when we should have solved it, if we had reinstated an assault weapons ban, if we had considered a no-fly, no-buy rule, if we had taken action when it was someone else's community the first time, when it was someone else's high school, when it was someone else's friends, if we had taken action in that moment, Drew and Juan might be here today. But it's not just driven by my frustration that it happened to them. It's driven by my fear of who it's going to happen to next. Brandon will continue to fight. And often he thinks about Drew, like he did just before we started talking. I spent three or four minutes in my kitchen uh, looking at this framed photograph that I have of Drew, Juan, and myself that sits at the highest point in the kitchen. I didn't put it together myself. I remember I showed up one day in the week after Pulse and someone, I'm not sure who, had wrapped this photograph and left it on my doorstep. Uh, And it's traveled with me ever since then. And so I just sat today, and I do frequently, with this photo of the three of us. And I remind myself why I'm doing what I'm doing. I remind myself of the promise I made that day. That even when it's really hard, even when the world is really dark, even in the moments where I don't want to get out of bed, I want to run away to my favorite spot in rural Spain and never come back, even in those moments, I have work to do because I made a promise that I would never give up, that I would never stop fighting for a world that he would be proud of. And it it powers me every single day. Before I end this episode, I wanted to take a minute to remember and honor the many lives that were profoundly impacted by the events at Pulse Nightclub. The 49 people killed and the 58 wounded and the many others who continue to feel the impact. This includes family members, loved ones, first responders, and the entire LGBTQ2S plus community, as well as the people of Orlando. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I wanted to give a special thanks to Brandon for sharing his story and Christine for letting me share Drew's. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks to Chris Bassett and Beatrice Politi. Let us know what you think of this episode, and please share it with a friend. 
It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for more stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Bella or email me at erica.bella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.